Please. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, gents. You okay? Like, I'm liking that book behind you there, Dan. Ah, yes. Very <laughs> are. Quality. Observant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. I always do it for our guests. I always make sure their book is behind on display if they've written one. What, what if they've written more than one? Um, I've got two shelves, so I'll... Um, so last <laughs> week, for Michael Giles, we had, um, I had the sweet spot of the top, because that's the book we were focusing on, and I put the feedback pendulum there. You might have to make room for a third one. Well, well so he has, hasn't he? It's his first one, but maybe a fourth one, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, let's not forget the, the first one that everyone has forgotten about. Yeah, Because yeah. the other two have been more successful, if you hear this, Michael... Because I'll, I'll keep this video. Because he'll be listening attentively, attentively, won't he? <laughs> Thinking, what are they he's saying? Just to, he's just trying to write more books than J.K. Rowling. That's all he's trying to do, to be honest with you. Oh, is he? Yeah, he doesn't seem to take a break, does he? I haven't said that. I don't think I'm in in between, uh, in between all his DIY. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, how, how does he do that? I, yeah, think, he does. I, think, he a, I think he gets a man in. Yeah, I think you're right. He's ripping out a kitchen while writing a book. I'll spend the time in his caravan. I, I just, I yeah, and he's got us talking about him. It's not even his week on the episode. He's had two episodes and we're still talking about him. He'll, he'll be pleased with this, won't he? So, David, what's your favourite thing about Michael Charles? <laughs> Let's start the podcast with that, shall we? What's you know your what, I'm, Michael Charles story? I'm not happy with him. He's a Man United fan. I'm, and I'm a Newcastle fan. So I'm, I'm not happy with him right now because oh, they're, they're just totally kiboshed this Jesse Lingard. Loan. It's not happening, so I'm going through it, so I'm happy with them at the moment. Um, your first full episode, David? Yeah, yeah, looking forward to this. I'm, I'm all prepped, walk the walk, so prep, prepped early. Nice. It's just an awful lot there to, uh, obviously, read the questions and it was an awful lot to try and get in, so. For the listeners who, who can't see the screen, because obviously we recorded the David has received the questions in advance, as all our guests do. And he's mind mapped the answers. That is preparation, isn't it? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a, a lot of sort of big ideas to hopefully get through and try to make some connections and try hopefully to distill some of it and so people make sense of it and want to find out more. And you're very expertly organised your ideas, haven't you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Better get started then, haven't we, without my yeah, yeah, let's talk about tonight. <laughs> so, Season 3, episode 4 already of More Than Job Podcast, and my name is Mike Bradford. Hi, it's Joe Wollerton. And my name is Daniel Bull. Listen clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, cause it begins like... In association with Research Ed, have the pleasure to welcome a friend of the show, David Goodwin. David is co-author of the hugely popular book, Organise Ideas, an associate assistant principal, a head of year in 10 and 11, and an evidence lead in education for Kyra Research. David, it's our absolute pleasure to welcome you to our podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We've already caught up with you at Research Ed, so we've spoken to you a little bit about the book, but... Just going back, one thing we didn't really get a chance to ask you at research, Ed, was, was about your life growing up and your own experience of education. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I went to a state school, um, a school in the um, North East Lincolnshire region, very well, uh, very well 
Sunderland school so always had fantastic results. Um, not too far down the road from me actually. Um, quite a large school in comparison to the majority of schools in the area. Um, and really, I, I was the sort of student that went on the radar a little bit. I could have tried harder, did okay, um, but yeah, the sort of typical just needed a little bit of um, a little bit of guidance and and, and monitoring really. But, yeah, very. It's a school very different to a lot of schools in the area. But as I said, very successful and uh, very large school. I think we might be sending my daughter there, possibly. What did you need guidance with? I don't know. I just I don't know. I, I don't think it was in because right now I'm I'm a very motivated person and I have been for a long time, very driven, very focused. But I just don't think I was at school. And and I imagine if I I went back to, to my old teachers now and explain to them what I did, I don't think they'd quite believe it. Don't think they quite. Don't think it'd, it'd be something they'd imagine. And to be honest, it, it wasn't for me. I didn't leave school thinking I'm going to be a teacher. I don't think that was. I was very passionate about graphics and art, and but again, didn't really. It wasn't until I started college and then got on to university that I, I, I thought about the teaching. Is that what, from a lack you... of careers guidance? Is it, or is it just a lack of pure engagement? Yeah, a bit of both. I think about. I mean, I'm 37 now, so it's. I've got a good memory, but from. It's a bit vague as to what I can remember now, and I just remember, I look at some students today, and I think I was a bit like that myself at school. Just needed a little bit of a kick up the backside, you know, a little bit more motivation, and uh, but you know, I think I've done all right for myself. You're a geography <laughs> teacher. The first part of the question: What made you want to go into teaching? But then. Obviously, you're into your art and you know your technical drawing. So how come you didn't go down that route in terms of becoming an art teacher? So I always wanted to be an architect. When I was at that, that was the thing in school. I wanted to be an architect, but then I found that I had to be fairly competent at maths. And I think that that put me off. And I think that's where. Whereas I was, I was good at geography, so that was sort of where I went with it. Rather than having maybe someone that could just guide me through that process and actually helped me realise what I wanted at the time and it was achievable. I, you know, I might have I might have been an architect, but no, I have no regrets. I, I thoroughly enjoy what I do, I thoroughly enjoy what I teach and uh, you know, very happy how things have turned out. I, I think as a as a head of year, I'm always preaching some students about keeping broad broad options open to them and, and not sort of channeling all of their energy and putting all of their eggs into one basket and keep quite a, a, a broad overview and, and, and seeking out advice and guidance from all of the, the potential options that are open for them. And then David, you've jumped to educational fame with the publication of your, your book, Organised Ideas, which you've co-authored with Oli Caviglioli, who people will know him from his, his work on the walkthrough series with Tom Sherrington. We did briefly discuss this with both yourself and Ollie at Research Ed Surrey, but can you give our listeners who perhaps didn't hear that or perhaps weren't at Research Ed Surrey the rationale, the ideas behind the book, and how you ended up working with such a legend that is Oliver Caviglioli? So I think I'll start with the um, how, how we ended up working. 
together. We've been exchanging uh, messages for a number of months, just me sending him pictures of my, my own work, trying to get advice from him. And we've been going backwards and forwards. And there was a conversation that we got into, I think it was on a Saturday night. And um, he, he mentioned to me about an old book that he'd written and, and advised that I purchased it. And I said, actually, I, I do own it. It was on one of the shelves in our staff room, just untouched, collecting dust. <laughs> so I took it away. So I, I, I did actually have a copy of the book. And I just jokingly said to him, I said, you know, if you ever wanted to, to, to write a book, I'd, I'd be, you know, amazing to, to write a book with you. It was, it was just a joke. And I wasn't expecting a response because I got three very, very lengthy messages about how we'd had this idea for, for a new book. And he'd been thinking of asking me, but for one reason or another, hadn't, and uh, it all started from there. So we had a, an initial Zoom meeting, sort of discussed what we wanted for the book, and then uh, it was, that was probably about the May of 2020, and we finished the book mid-May 2021, and it was just a, we'd gone to meet each other on several occasions, and we never got the opportunity to actually meet in person because of COVID, so all of our writing and work on the book was this Zoom uh, piece of software called Mural, which allows, it's basically digital sticky notes. And so project management through that. And then because I've done an A-level in graphics, I, I was fairly secure with using Adobe Illustrator. And I was really keen to not just be sort of like a, a bystander, just, just responsible for actually doing the writing, but I wanted to be involved in all of the illustrative work, page layout and things like that. So a real good opportunity for me to, to go back and reacquire, reacquaint myself with a lot of the things that I've learned through A-level graphics. So that, that's sort of how our partnership began. And then in terms of the book, well, I've got to, I've got to branch one of my, my mind map, I've map this out. Um, the rationale, uh, for me, I, I was really keen to write the book because a lot of the conversations around graphic organisers, the people just weren't getting to the crux of it. They, just, they weren't discussing the right things, in my opinion. So we had conversations around icons and you use too many, you shouldn't be using them, blah, 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 blah. Um, the learning as a generative activity, the Pharrell and Mayer book, and then Mark Henson Zoyenza wrote the a really nice in-action series of that book as well. They highlight in their book that graphic organisers, they use the term mapping, they have boundary conditions, for example, they're difficult to use, or they can be difficult to construct, rather, and the time it takes to construct them. And I'm thinking, well, that, that, yeah, that's a fair and valid point, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't use them because the effect sizes, the research is saying, yeah, they, they, you know, these are, these, are, these are working, these are really good. So we wanted to create something that really made it super clear and easy of to how to use these graphic organizers, how to bypass bypass some of those boundary conditions that have been identified. Uh, and it's a bit like I'm reading a book at the moment on explaining and they use this analogy about a recipe. So you follow a recipe on how to, for example, brew beer and you know you follow the recipe and you might have some success at, at you know brewing some decent beer. But if you explain why for example, the hops need to be of a certain condition or uh, why certain hops and certain barley and pepper and certain beer. If you've got an understanding of the why behind that, 
you're more likely to have great success in terms of actually following that recipe and, and having success at actually brewing that beer. So when I think about graphic organisers, I'm thinking, yeah, we could create a manual that talks teachers through step by step how to construct them, how to pair them with other strategies, how to get the most out of them. But nowhere, nowhere in all of the things that Oliver and I were we were reading was there really any explanations to why why they won't work. So a big part of the book was taking theory, taking research, and really trying to make sense. And we and we've covered a, a, a real broad um, range of, of research from many different fields, from neuroscience to psychology. Um, one of the central themes in the book, the external memory field, um, was created by Merlin Donald, an anthropologist and an evolutionary psychologist. And we wanted to try and get all of these threads somehow linked together into a coherent argument as to why these organisers work, as in opposed to the, the typical conversation around, yeah, but they're difficult to construct and, you know, they work with high ability students, but they don't work with low ability. And then you read conflicts in research that says they work with low ability, but they don't work with high ability. So we wanted to really try and make sense of it. And at the same time, provide a real, real practical guide that teachers can pick up. There's no pressure to read the book from front to back. You can dip in, you can dip out. If you want to read the research and the theory behind the ideas in the book, that's there at the front. If you want to see what it looks like in different subjects, we've got over 50 teacher examples. And if you really want granular level walkthrough guided step-by-step, this is how you do it. You've got the when section that, that talks you through literally step-by-step how to pair them with other strategies. I take the most out of them. And let's start with the, by looking at the four cognitions. So what do you yeah. mean by the four cognitions? And most importantly for classroom practitioners, how does this impact upon them in, in real life, day-to-day practice? Yeah, so we didn't, we, did, we didn't come up with the four cognitions when we wrote Organise Ideas. We did cover the research behind them, but we didn't really give them a title as such. It's only really, we've just finished um a book and an action book with Emma Turner, which is uh, a summary of Annie Murphy Paul's The Extended Mind. So it's The Extended Mind in Action. We're hoping it'll be published in the next couple of months. And it was, had we read The Extended Mind while we was writing organised ideas, it might have altered, it wouldn't have altered the content, but it might have altered how we'd sequence some of the content in the theory in the research section might have altered how we how we paired some things and would have definitely covered this idea of the four cognitions. So I'll talk you through firstly what they are and, and how we've arrived at them because the, the four cognitions is it, it's a term that we've sort of come up collectively, me, Oliver and Emma. So the first cognition we're all familiar with is what we've termed the memorised cognition. Working memory, long term memory, encoding information from the working memory to long term memory, retrieval on demand. So we're, we're familiar with that. So we look at memorised cognition as being everything we know around the relationship between the working memory, long-term memory and cognitive load theory. So we, we, we know about cognitive load theory. And as we're, as we're doing our research for organised ideas and, the, and then our, our second book, we, we come across other research. So I'm going to start with, uh, I'll start with uh, Geary's biological primary and biological secondary memory because that sort of feeds into this idea of the four cognition. So those that aren't familiar, Gary, evolutionary psychologist, looked at what he terms biologically primary and biologically, biologically secondary 
knowledge and the biologically primary knowledge is things that we've just evolved to survive so for example cooperating and, and working with others we've evolved that we needed that for um, early development as a, as a species and then the biologically secondary knowledge is all of the stuff that we do in the classroom it's all of the stuff we teach uh, so it's the cultural knowledge that we haven't evolved to acquire the only way that we can acquire that is through teaching through really detailed attention and uh, being taught how to how to learn that stuff so that leads us nicely into the other three cognitions and the reason for that is because the other three cognitions are all examples of biologically primary knowledge that can offset the limitations of working memory in the acquisition of biologically secondary knowledge so for example um, John Swaller and, and other cognitive science like Fred Parr did a, an, an update into to cognitive load theory. There's been, a, there's been several updates over the last decade, but some of this isn't really talked about. So they looked at embodied cognition. And embodied cognition is where we, we use our body as a, as a way of learning. And I don't want that to sound really, really um, progressive in the sense that we're not expecting students to get up and dance and, and act the, you know, the process of photosynthesis. That's not what we're talking about. But what they found for their research, and they reviewed uh, the PhD of, and I need to just be careful how I pronounce this, of Fang Su Hu, who looked at gesturing, in particular tracing, as a way of maximizing retrieval. And, and what this paper found that was when gesturing and tracing of geometrical shapes was used with worked examples that was far more effective than worked examples alone for the comprehension and the retrieval of the work that they were that they were doing so that's one example of how gestures which is considered biological primary knowledge can be used to help serve the acquisition of biologically secondary knowledge this the third cognition is what we call situated cognition and this is really where these, these graphic organisers said, this is where we look at using cognitive tools as a way of augmenting our thinking. And the extended mind, the notion of the extended mind was written by two British philosophers, which were, well, was realised by two British philosophers, which was Andy Clark and David Chalmers. And it didn't really get much traction when they first wrote about it, which was around 1997. It didn't get much traction. And I think one of the main reasons it's got a lot more traction now is because we have smartphones. So I'll give you some examples of uh, one of the early stories that um, David Chalmers and um, Andy Clark used to, to illustrate this, this form of cognition. So you've got two people, you've got Inga and Otto, both uh, arranged to meet up at a museum. Inga, long term memory, she can remember the route off by heart and she, she can get herself there, no problem. Whereas Otto has amnesia. The only way Otto can get to this location is because he has a, he has a notebook in front of him that he is used to record the route, so he, he can remember the route and how he's getting from A to B. So the question the question is, by Otto extending his mind and putting those thoughts on the page and using that as a cognitive tool to get from A to B, is all of the cognition taking place in here, or is the cognition been extended out onto the page in front of him? So this is where uh, situated cognition in terms of the extended mind lives and, and I'll talk a little bit more about that from uh, through the lens of what graphic organizers shortly uh, and couple that together with um, Mel and Donald's extended mind uh, sorry, uh, external memory field. The final cognition is distributed cognition 
which is all to do with running your thoughts and ideas through the minds of others. And again, I'll talk a little bit more about that um, in a few later examples, but essentially working with others, which in the classroom is a bad rep because unstructured group work is a disaster, and we, and we know that. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll allude to a, a fantastic teacher at the Totteridge Academy, I think it is, works with Anne Boxer, a maths teacher, whose podcast on uh, the Intrapla podcast with Ollie Lovell, who talks about group work and how he has got the most out of group work, and it's absolutely fantastic. And anyone that's doubtful about how to use group work in a structured manner, listen to it, because it is absolutely golden. And Oliver and I were fortunate enough to interview him and, and get him to contribute to our forthcoming book to talk, talk through it because it is, as I said, it, it's golden. But there's so much more we can unpick there um, in terms of how all of this fits in with the Organised Ideas book and uh, the graphic organisers. So I'll take a second to breathe and I'll, uh, yeah, we can, we can unpick them further. says that poorly organised knowledge cannot be readily remembered or used, but students don't know how to organise their knowledge effectively. So there lies the problem. So how do we get students to become organised and what should practitioners do to help them achieve this? Yeah, I probably, I feel like I've spoke quite, quite abstract so far, I've not really made this very practical, but so I'll, I'll get to some practical examples as we go through. So organising ideas and organising knowledge, the, the first thing is a knowledge organiser is pretty poor at organising knowledge. Okay? That's not to discredit them as a tool, I use them myself, I like them, but they're pretty, pretty terrible at organising because all they are essentially is just a list of discrete entities, that, that there's no sort of connection between all of the big ideas really to unlock the potential of a knowledge organiser. You can use a graphic organiser to do that and there's a, a strategy in the book where, where we do that. But, what was really good about learning as a generative activity, uh, Ferrella and Mayer, what was positive about that was that they recon recognised organising as an integral part of the learning process, which up until that point, it had been seen as nothing really more than an administrative task, just making sure that you've got your equipment for lesson, your channels on your desk and all that sort of stuff. But what we're talking about is how we organise knowledge and how as experts we organise knowledge. And we do it so, we're so adept at doing it we, we suffer with the case of knowledge. We, we fail to recognise that our students as novices cannot do that same high-level organising that we do almost automatically. So we can, you know, we can do retrieval practice until we're blue in the face, but if we don't show our students how these ideas and these concepts connect, the relationship between them, where they sit in terms of the knowledge structure, we're never going to maximise the potential for them to develop the same sort of schema which you know that the expert has. So, we'll, I'll, I'll sort of go, I'll go with schema, and then we'll, I'll work my way through there. So, schema is a term that we're, we're seeing used more and more frequently in, in the education field, which basically is a term that describes uh, the connection between lots and lots of ideas and how previous knowledge helped acquire new knowledge, etc., etc. So it all builds up. That scheme in our head is quite fuzzy. Uh, we, we can make connections and associations 
quite frequently and can come in and can go. So really when we start to create these, these organisers, what we're doing is we're taking what's quite fuzzy and really making it a, easier to communicate it. Actually taking what's out here and putting it on paper so we can make, really make explicit to our students how all of these big ideas and these things connect and are linked together and how cause and effect works. So basically what we're trying to do is take uh, our mental representations, tidy them up a little bit, put them out there in the world so we're making them really explicit to our students. There's a variety of ways in which we can do that. So in terms of weird diagrams and uh, or graphic organisers, we could use them as a teaching tool. And this was another reason why I was keen to write the book because I think a lot of talk around graphic organisers was them as some sort of retrieval practice activity and that's all that we're good for, which I very rarely use them as a retrieval practice activity. So we can use them as a, as a tool to help make sense of complicated text and complicated processes. And when we're reading, we can be creating these organisers. We can use them as a way of producing something in the service of extended writing, for example. So a lot of the time, if I'm going to have my students produce an extended piece of writing, the first thing we do is we organise our ideas, we organise the knowledge that we need, because then, when it comes to the writing process, our working memory is free to actually focus on the act of writing itself, writing in a more sophisticated and academic manner, because what we've done is, we've made sense of all the ideas, we've got them out there, we've externalised them, and our working memory is now free to actually think about how we're going to structure our sentences. We can use them as a, as a way of doing, uh, like, review, so daily and weekly review, and, and I call, well, Oliver and, and I call these post-organisers. So at the end of one, two, three lessons, you know, like at the end of the week, you can get them to, to map these ideas onto sort of like a, a progressive organiser. So it starts off with a black piece of paper, and then we build those layers up, those branches and those connections, so that at the end of the topic, they've got a lovely piece of work that essentially is reviewed everything that they've covered. Now, most of these organisers are what we might say are data reductions because really they distill everything down, they take out all of the sort of complex syntax, they're devoid of any sort of linguistic grand flourishes and things like that, it really just gets to the crux of the meaning. So these organisers are, are, are a way of widening the, point, widening the points of access, we're, we're trying to increase the points of access to intellectual thinking. We're trying to make it more efficient for us to acquire that knowledge, but we're trying to do all of that in a way that helps students do something with that. There's some sort of final performance. So it's really important to, and we, we get this message across, I think, really well in the book, that creating the organiser is not the end product. We don't create the organiser for creating for the sake of it. It's The end product is this. It's this dialogue that I'm having now. Like, all of this stuff that I'm talking about, I might, there's an awful lot there to remember. So by plotting all of this out, it, I think it just, for, for me and, and for students, just makes it really, really coherent. So how do we do that in the classroom? Well, like anything, you've got to model it, you've got to demonstrate it. Uh, like anything, you might need to create your students some templates. Like anything, they might need practice. Uh, I read one, I think it was on the Learning Scientists website, they were talking about concept mapping, and concept mapping is, is difficult. And in, in one research paper they reviewed, they said it took something like 50, 10 to 15 weeks for the students to 
really get to grips with it. And, and I'm thinking, that, that can't be right. Like, I can teach my students how to do it in 10 to 15 minutes. And again, it goes back to the problem that we, 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 we sort of encountered, and, and all of them must have been, been encountering for the last 20 years, because he's, he's been immersed in this stuff for over 20 years. And he keeps reading the same thing over and over again. And it's because no one has created anything that makes it really, really clear on step by step. This is how you do it. This is why you do it. This is how you do it. And this is how you can scaffold it, how you can create templates for your students. And, and that's really what we want to do, to do with the book. And, and without sounding big-headed in any way, I don't think there's a book on the market on this topic that is as comprehensive as what we've, what we've put together. I just don't think there's a, a book that, is, that, that clearly gets everything across like, like we have done. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... Well, and it's probably a very truthful opinion, given that you wrote the book and that you, you you're clearly an expert in this area, and you've done you know you've done a hell of a lot of research alongside Oliver Cav as well. You know, who, who, you're probably at the forefront of this this kind of thing in the whole country, if not Europe. We, so we started off we start off with a we've just started a, a new project. Um, we start off with, with what we call our little book club. So it's a case of I mean, Oliver has a little bit more time. Than, on his hand than I do in terms of being able to, to read this stuff because I understand, understand the school but the first, the first sort of thing is right let's get reading and, and I'll say to him yeah what, what books do I need and my wife will get frustrated because day after day I knew I was on the library cards <laughs> my book and, and that that's, that was what organised ideas was it, it, it started off as this book club and, and some of this stuff I think for Oliver which, which and, and this is me putting words in his mouth so Apologies, Oliver, if you're listening. This is, I think what was nice for him was he's worked on this stuff for so long. It was it, nice for him to have, to be able to distribute his cognition, as in run his thoughts and his ideas through me and see things differently to how he might have seen them had he written the book himself. And there was, there was a couple of just real highlight moments when he was writing the book where we'd, we'd be, I think we'd been on the Zoom meeting for five, six hours racking our brains as to how something might look or how something might fit in the book. We'd arrive at a solution and it'd just snowball a load of other ideas that we didn't have previously. And, and honestly, if anyone has ever, you know, has ever written a book or is, is thinking about writing a book, the single best thing about the whole process was just how we went about what We organised the book like we're advising teachers to, to do in the classroom. We got sticky notes, and we wrote down every idea that we wanted in the book. We chunked the sticky notes together, right, this is chapter one, this is chapter two. Um, and then we explored, obviously, like sort of links and things like that. And then we, we assigned the pages to each other. So, right, you know, Oliver, you're writing this, David, you're writing this. And so we, we, we wrote the book and we walked, we walked the walk, really. We, you know, we, we lived the whole organising our ideas like, like the same teachers should. And Oliver's coming on soon, I believe. Is that right? Super. Or is that exclusive? Am I not meant to? Am I not meant to? Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, actually, yeah, this is breaking news. Yeah, Tom Sherrington and Ollie Cav are coming on as a double I mean... act to give uh, an advanced, uh, an advanced interview about their walk through Three's book, which I think is being released. I think on the eighteenth of April, five days before Research Ed Warrington. So, which people will be able to purchase the book from. So, yeah, Tom and Ollie. Yeah, it's a bit like when Princess Diana said there's three of us in this relationship. It, 
you know, Oliver Cobb's going to make a decision. Is he is he David Goodwin or is he Tom Sherrington? You know, he's got a yeah. Come on, well, Oliver. <laughs> no, he's, he's, he is great to work with, and uh, it, I don't. He just sees things differently. I think one one of the best things out of the whole experience of, of working with him is my writing. For for one thing, is is dramatically improved. Like I'm I'm so much of a better. It's not that I was a bad writer before, but I had so many sort of bad habits and. He's very. The thing with Oliver is he's, he's interested in so many different fields. Like you know, as we was pre- preparing for research, yet of course Oliver has studied how people present and he, and he's you know worked with people that prepare people from Fortune five hundred companies and he just he's interested in so many things and he all of his ideas and sort of, you know, he's writing about education, but he's drawing from so many fields of expertise. And I, and I sometimes think we, we miss a trick in, in research ed community of we, we're so invested in what research psychology, cognitive science is saying, but fail to sort of look wider afield. And, and he's done that and, and continues to. So, yeah, that was one of the most, I think, most exciting things about working with him. Talking about cognitive science, I was going to ask you about cognitive loops and the external yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we read a book, Merlin Donald's, which is evolutionary psychology, looked at the evolution of the modern mind. And so I'll, I'll talk you through the phases of, of this and then how we arrive at the external memory field. And that's not our term, that, that was Merlin Donald's term. So there's three sort of main stages in human evolution in terms of cognition and cognitive development. So there was the mimetic phase where communication was through representational acts, so we'd we'd mimic each other. And then we developed in what we call the mythic phase and we developed language and gesture was brought into it. So I think you can possibly see here the link to going back to David Geary and biological primary memory. And then it's the theoretic stage which is the shortest stage, but also the stage where humans made the largest cognitive jump, the largest development in terms of their cognition. And it was during this stage where we stopped doing everything here and we started putting things on paper. We started recording our ideas and it's largely accredited to ancient Greece where ideas, even ideas that were speculative, were recorded and those ideas could outlived the person that had that initial idea and they could be developed, refined and improved on. And they, they enable humans to have what Darwin calls longer trains of thought. So the external memory fields, Merlin Donald calls this sort of like our external working memory, our external physiospatial sketch pad, is, is basically the space in front of us. So when we talk about cognitive loops, what we, what we mean by that is when we put our thoughts out into the world, so they're on paper. Those thoughts reflect back to us. Because they're out there and they're not in here, our working memory can process what's there in front of us, can refine it, can improve it, can develop it. We can then make those alterations on paper in front of us and those thoughts connect back to us. So we create and we augment our thinking in this loop between working memory, situated cognition, so the space in front of us. And it goes back to what I said a little bit earlier in the presentation about Ingrid Otto 
and also having amnesia in his sort of cognition is extended through the use of his, his notebook and it enables him to be able to, to do what he needs to do. Now, if we think about graphic organizers, again, as a, it's a tool that we can use to augment our thinking. It's a tool we can use to prepare for conversations with other people. It's a tool that, and research on gesturing, and I think we'll have a, a little talk on gesturing shortly, research on gesturing shows that we're more likely to gesture if we've got something to gesture at. So when we've got this graphic organiser, we're externalising our thinking, so we're putting thoughts out into the world where they can reflect back to us where we can improve them. Improve them. And that's really what metacognition is. So you know, metacognition, with, with people are keen to, to talk about it and, and want to know more about it. Essentially, it becomes very, very difficult to get metacognitive when it's everything's up in here. We put it out on paper, our thoughts are there in front of us, we can look at them anew, we can compare them with someone else. If we're explaining to someone else, we can, you know, bypass some of the limitations or boost our working memory by gesturing and, and tracing. So that's really where the, the idea of these cognitive loops come from. And again, um, we talk about cognitive loops in, in the inaction book, the upcoming in, in action book, and the cognitive loops don't just extend between us and the artifacts in front of us, they extend between our working memory, the artifacts in front of us, our working memory, other people, our working memory, and the space in front of us. Now, hey, David, how much of the science do you explain to your students? Is, is, is an important part of understanding this getting the students to understand some of the science as well, or not? Not really, because I think, I think the biggest problem with that would be is they've already got so much to contend with, like there's so much knowledge for them to contend with. Anyway, like if we, let's I'll start with gesturing and, and sort of embodied cognition. So Annie Murphy Paul's books, she's not a med, she's not a teacher, so she's a science writer. So she, she writes this book, The Extended Mind, fantastic book, and it, it covers so many different fields of expertise and it's applicable to so many different industries, including education. But you could be Forgiven if you read it and think, mm, don't really think that applies to the classroom. So, but there are lots and lots of opportunities to take what's in Annie Murphy Paul's book and, and, and use that in the classroom. So for embodied cognition, if we're talking about, for example, uh, gesturing, and uh, there's a few ways we can look at it. Gesturing, the, the gesture gap, I'll start with that, let's start with gesture gap. So, the gesture and vocabulary gap. It's a piece of research that Annie Murphy Paul reviews, which says that there is a parallel between the vocabulary of people in low socioeconomic families and their exposure to gestures. So people in low socioeconomic families have been shown to gesture less, their parents gesture less, and as a result, and in Parallel to that is they have a, a, a lower vocabulary. So that's one way in which gesture, and she, she mentions, there's, there's a little bit more to it in the book, but she mentioned about if we want students to boost their vocabulary, we need to gesture more. As parents, as adults, we need to gesture more, we need to get students to gesture more. So that's one way we can look at it. In terms of in the classroom, there's a variety of ways in which gesturing helps. So I've talked about the tracing of geometric shapes. And 
Oliver did this years ago. He had this strategy. He calls it recount and redraw. And if you don't know it, he, he builds up a, a mind map or a, a graphic organizer and has, as the students explain their organizer to somebody else, they trace the angles of each of the branches as they're explaining it to, the, to their partner. And what, what he found, and he had no research at the time, but what he found was that the level in which students could retrieve the information was just far greater than those students that, that couldn't do it. He had no research for it. He was, he was getting his staff to do it in the school that he was um, headmaster at. He couldn't explain why. But then obviously we have this, this research here um, from Fang Su Hu, uh, which has been included in John Sweller's updated version of cognitive load theory. So there's research there to support it. But I'm thinking about gesturing in my class, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to see my students explain to a partner, maybe I want to see them explain part of a diagram. It doesn't have to be a, a graphic organizer, it could be a diagram of how earthquakes happen, for example. And I want my students to explain it to the partner. There's no better way than making sure that the person listening is paying attention than the student pointing to the thing that they're talking about. So when I'm asking my students to, to, to explain to the partner, I'm saying, whatever point of your diagram you're explaining, you're pointing to that, you're making sure your partner's looking down at that, because then we know that they're paying attention to the thing that you want them to attend to. So that's one way we can look at gesturing, as well as this idea of gesturing and tracing angles. And, and, and just going back to that research of um, tracing angles, it's almost as if they're creating a memory trace. And I remember the first time I did that, so the recount and redraw activity. When you, once the students have created the map, they've explained it to somebody else. Then they have to put the map away and they have to recount the whole thing from memory with no support. And it's amazing. You, you, you can see the students, they're sat there, you can almost see their eyes darting around, trying to recall all of the steps that they took to, to produce this sort of external representation of that schema that we've... we've, we've we've shared with them, we've made public to them. And all of this is happening with gestures which have been shown to have zero cost on working memory. So these three additional cognitions to the memory, memorized, cognition, uh, memorized cognition, what we're talking about here is biologically primary knowledge being used in the service of, of, of acquiring biologically secondary knowledge. So when we're creating that organizer, we've got a situ situated cognition, we can add another layer to that, which is our embodied cognition, where we're gesturing and we're explaining it to a peer, so we've distributed our cognition as well. We're getting feedback from a peer to check that the ideas that we've got and the knowledge that we've put down on paper is accurate, or if it needs refining, or if it needs improving. And we can do that because it's out there and it's not all up in here. So we've created three to four cognitive loops, working memory page, working memory peer, working memory hand. So we're augmenting our thinking across four different ways. And that's what's really important that we key to get across with the inaction book is this doesn't invalidate in any way what we know about cognitive load theory. It doesn't invalidate what we know about the working memory, long-term memory, and the importance of retrieval. If anything, it gives us a richer understanding of how learning and how thinking happens. Yeah, if you just you might not know the answer to this. Hmm. Why is there less gesturing in lower socioeconomic groups. Do we do we know that? Is, is there any evidence or data on that? I only I honestly cannot rec I cannot recall. It's the papers reviewed in Animated Paul's book. And what what is fantastic about um, the, the Animated Paul book is rather than having at the back a discrete list of the references that she's used in the book, she has what's called a note section. So where she's referred to a paper in the book in the back, there is notes on her key findings 
from that research paper or from that, that line of inquiry. So it's really, really clear. And I, I, had I had the time stay, I'd have gone back through and read it because I, I sort of suspected that might be a question I get asked. So again, we're, if I'm thinking about from a classroom point of view, I'm, I'm gesturing a lot anyway, and, and, and I'm encouraging my students to when they're explaining to each other. And I, I'm thinking, try and how, how to provide opportunities in the classroom for my students to gesture. So maybe I'm talking about plate tectonic movement and I'm asking my students to explain that to, to, to their peer and, and, and I want them to use gestures during their explanation. So I say, right class, you know, you're explaining to your partner, let's, you know, a constructive plate margin, and these plates move away from each other, should, should you know, move away from each other. But at this plate margin, you know, one plate's a duck, so that, that plate's a duck, so that's beneath that one. So I want to see them doing that because not only am I listening to what they're saying, I'm also looking at the gestures that they make. So it's is there a match between what they're saying and what they're acting out with their hands? And again, this isn't, it's not about getting up and singing and dancing and going for a walk halfway through the lesson. It's about increasing the information, that the data that I can get from my students about the level of understanding of the things that, that I'm teaching. And then again, going back to, you know, pointing to this, the, the page on the diagram, the, the point on the diagram where you want your partner to focus to. That's just basic getting your students to pay attention to the to the knowledge to the thing that you want them to pay attention to and i think i think in possibly the michaela community school where they talk about when they're doing reading activity when they're doing reading and the students have a rule about the finger as the as the reading the following it's just basic routines that allow the students to pay attention to to the thing that you want them to pay attention to so if nothing else you know if you're not convinced by gesturing in terms of tracing over the angles of your geometric shape or tracing over the angles of your organiser, you've got something there that points to the thing you want them to be attending to. I'm going to ask you a question about dual code, coding and word diagram. Well, as you're explaining that, just about the Michaela thing, just got me thinking about the last interview we did, which was obviously with Matt Hancock MP, and his dyslexia bill. And I was thinking your organised ideas and, and, and the way in which many of these ideas are uh, illustrated and, and sort of thought out, must be great for dyslexic students, you know, in the classroom and, and in terms of helping them sort of understand and, and, you know, be able to read better. Again, it goes back to that, what, we, what I said at the start about uh, rationale behind the book, widening points of access to, to intellectual thinking. So when we look at how organisers can help um, with reading, there's only really four lines of inquiry. So most texts will fall into these four lines of inquiry and, and really to unlock which organiser to use depends on the structure of the text, the structure of the knowledge. So for example, the, a piece of text might deal with providing an overview, classifying, categorising something. It could cover, compare and contrast. So you could be looking at comparisons, look at similarities, look at differences. It could be a piece of text that covers a sequence of events, process, or it could be a piece of text that deals with cause and effect. So when I'm looking at a piece of text from my students, the first thing I'm, I'm looking at, well, what my students are looking for, is which one of those four categories does this structure of text fit into? And then that determines which organiser we're going to use, because graphically, that's the best way of presenting the information. So if I want my students to provide an overview, and I did this with my, my daughter during the first lockdown, she had a piece of homework to do, 
piece of home learning to do on uh, marine life. She picked an owl wall and she had to provide like an overview, its characteristics, its habitats and things like that. So she, before she did anything, we got a mind map, we created a mind map and we each branch represented the, the different line of inquiry that she had to explore. And because she did that, again, everything was out there and everything else that she had to do afterwards, she was able to pay closer attention to the act of writing, for example. Uh, if I want to look at cause and effect, I might look at a relations diagram. A lot more complicated, we're looking at links, we're looking at exploring links. And it was, I think it was Ben Ranson, who, he's, I don't know if you, if you don't know who he is, absolutely superb, he's a geography teacher, just, if, if I could be taught by one person, it, it would be Ben. But he did a, a, a research ed session last year on, on where diagrams, and he, he used this, uh, what I'm about to show you now, and it just, it just sort of blew, blew my mind. He said, every time your students create a link between one one component of their organiser to the other, every link is an opportunity to check for understanding. So these organisers, when they've created, it, it's just a, a, a perfect a memoir for a teacher, for a student, to really check the understanding of the students. Uh, so that, that, sorry, that was just something that sort of came to me as I was explaining that. And so yeah, when, when it comes to reading, the first thing is to unlock the structure of the text. And that, there's plenty of uh, research into text structures. And then you can select the correct organiser and in the, in the organised idea book. Before we introduce each of the organisers, we have the language that would help you identify which organiser to use. I think I've done a poster actually for it just recently, put it on the Organiser Ideas website. David, if this is possible, this would be mm. great, would you be able to send me, when you were back in work, back in school, some mm. examples of students' actual work? Yeah, absolutely. I could perhaps um, put a link on for this podcast episode because yeah, yeah, people definitely. are probably thinking, and I, I think you've explained almost perfectly, you know, I think you've done a fantastic job of explaining very complex um, ways of working, but it'd also be great to, to see, see it, it. Oh, this is yeah. actually how it works, um, you know, in, in real life, day to day, if, if at all probably, possible. It's probably a lot simpler than I'm describing it, to be honest, but yeah, yeah, absolutely, and, and that's, there was a, 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 one of the first sort of trial ones of something I had, I had this idea as, as we began writing organised ideas was I wanted to explore with my students how what they were learning was linked with other topics and other concepts and other ideas and it, it because of the nature of my subjects and, and especially on uh, the last exam paper that geography students sit, sit it's students ability to make connections to inform their judgment so it's not enough for them just to draw evidence from what they're currently learning, they have to be able to see connections and make meaning across topics, across concepts and ideas. So I thought, let's let's make it really, really explicit. And it was a time investment. It, it, it took probably two lessons to do, but I would argue that there was at zero. That I just cannot think about any other way I could I could do what I did and get students to make as many connections and see the links between so many ideas and creating this concept map. So we started off with, I call it Thinking Link, and there's, again, there's a walkthrough in the book, 
started off with some basic retrieval practice. So it's just simple retrieval practice of the topic they're current, currently learning about. So they're, they're getting all of their ideas down. And then I looked at, I identified three other topics and through cold call and pair share and guided retrieval, I got them to do some retrieval practice of, of the three other topics as well. And then I modeled and demonstrated to them, like, look, this, this idea here links with what you've learned there. So that's a link. You know, you know, what's the relationship? Pair share, cold call, lots of check from standard. So right, let's map that out. So we, we map that out and, and I've created for them a template. So a partially completed organizer, map that out. And once I felt like they were going to have a high degree of success on their own, I, I took the scaffolding away and went, right, go for it. So they, they completed their own, their own organizer. And, you know, I, I was praising those students that came up with novel connections that I hadn't really thought about myself. And really, when you're doing this, you really need something in mind yourself as to what you're expecting from the students. What what are you expecting their finished piece of, you know, their finished diagram is going to look like? So I was, you know, really praising those students that made connections that I hadn't thought about. And then after that, they were able to, again, do an extended piece of writing. And I demonstrated to the students how each sort of, main branch of their organizer that's a paragraph that's a paragraph there that you can use to write and then that's a paragraph there and that's a paragraph there and what we ended up with was a extended piece of writing really really coherently written by, by all students of how all of these big ideas are connected and linked together and again it, it, a time investment yeah two hours time but i cannot think of a, a better way that I could have done that with, with my student. So I couldn't think of a better way of, of getting that level of connections and associations across to my students. That essentially, and I said, you know, I said this to my students, that is essentially what's going on in my, as, as a geographer, as an expert by subject, that's what's going on in my mind. I've shared that with you. You've made use of it. You've augmented your thinking. Yeah, obviously, didn't use that language, but now, now you're free. And whereas if I'd have said some, Right, I want you to write about this, and you know, there's a, a writing frame or some sentence stars and things like that. I, I, I would have got nowhere near, nowhere near as, as a coherent piece of work as, as what I did here. Um, and you know, going back to how I teach this with the students and the language that I use, I do say, I, I do share with them certain things. So I do share with them about text structures and how to identify what the, the sort of text is and how that might help them in terms of representing that information using a, 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 non, a graphic organiser. So I do share that with them when I feel like they're ready for it, because it's something that I think they can, they can take beyond secondary school, and they can take on to, to the place of work in college and university, etc. So your fourth cognition, you know, thinking with others, is that the beauty of it? Is it, you know, you think with others and you share with others, it takes you to realms that each individual student would never be able to access on their own, or that there's I, that shared, I didn't that really, shared collaboration? Yeah, I, I didn't, hey, we talked very, very briefly in Organised Ideas about sharing ideas with others. The way, the way we talk about it mainly is a way of preparing students, a way of rehearsing what students are going to share verbally during cold call, for example or a way of them rehearsing and sharing their thoughts with somebody else before they go on to the final act, which might be an extended piece of writing, for example. So that was really where, where, where we wrote about it in the, in the organised
guys I did up, up then. Now that we've written this extended binding action book, there's a couple of things that came out about it for the, from the distributed cognition section. The first one was when we came across Sammy Kempner's work, who, who works at the Torridge Academy. So Sammy is a maths teacher. As I said, his, his podcasts on the Ollie Lovell E-Triple R podcast. And he talks about group work in his maths lessons. And I was blown away by just how well group work would work. Like, seriously, high-level stuff. So some of the principles that he has in his classroom, he uses group work when there's enough knowledge in the classroom. So he, he doesn't use group work as some sort of misguided way of discovery learning or anything like that. When there's enough knowledge in the classroom, group work can be used. And the way in which he uses group work, one of the ways rather he uses group work, is when they're going back through things like tests and assessments. So groups of... Uh, apologies, Sammy, if you, if you listen to this and I get this wrong, but I'm just going to try and recall it. He has his groups matched so that, for example, somebody that scored really, really well on the test is paired up with somebody that hasn't scored really well on the test. And it's that person's responsibility to score well to help the other student in terms of teaching them. And then Sammy follows it up with a lot of what he, he uses purple pen, which is checking that the gap in the knowledge, the errors that were made have now been fixed. And the person responsible is, is the whole group. If, if you're working a group of four, you're only as good as the weakest person in that group. If the weakest person in that group cannot explain what needs explaining, you've let your group down. So there's a real high, high level accountability in these group work situations. But he talks at length about how the process works, how, how they've approached it, but how it's totally revolutionised the, the way in which they do math at, at, at Torridge Academy. Uh, but it's all about structure, it's all about high-level accountability. It's not about students just simply getting together, having a conversation, and not really discussing the work at hand. For me, in terms of my sort of distributed cognition and, and what I'm doing, it's it's all around you sharing your ideas with someone so that I can check your level of understanding. It's a way of you rehearsing. And if you know if you want your ideas through your partner and they say, "No, oh, actually, you thought that," then I'm expecting you to go back and either challenge that or improve your work. I don't want to check that. I'm going to check. On, I'm going to check your understanding. I'm going to cold call. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to quiz you. I'm going to test you. Whatever it might be. And so, the you know, going back to the the distributed cognition and the uh, graphic organisers. I mean, I'm sure it's it, it's we're all in agreement. And, and anyone listens to this, you you're more likely to be able to have a successful conversation with your partner if you've got something to talk about. So if you've created an organiser, you're more likely to have a successful conversation if you've put all of that out there in front of you so you can have that conversation with your partner. Uh, another, um, another thing with the distributed cognition that I thought, which I've never thought about before, was until I read Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion 3.0, and he's got the STAR acronym, which stands for Sit Up, Track, I think, is it Attend To or something like that? Oh, is and it? Then, yeah, I think the new, I think, because it's, it's, been, it's been remodeled and then rephrased or repeat or something like that. Yeah. I'm watching the, all of these videos on the Teach Like a Champion website. All these videos are just like really, really, again, high-level distributed cognition, teacher asking questions, and the whole class are just turning their attention to that one student who's going to share their answer. They're all sat up, they're paying attention, they're showing that student that they care about what that student's got to say. So this unlocks something else for me, which is just like the empathy of 
making every single student in the classroom feeling like their voice actually matters. So it's an inclusive environment where, you know what, your voices matter and we're all going to show you that it matters because we're going to sit up, we're going to listen to it. And by the way, class, I'm, you know, I'm checking you listen to it because I might ask you to repeat or rephrase what, what your partner said. And again, so that, that sort of changed my opinion, really, of what group work can and should be and it, it not just becoming this project-based and, you know, how it's sort of got this sort of reputation for itself as being. Um, so it can be done, and it can be done with a lot of structure. What's pleasing to see is, it, is in the animated poll book when she talks about working with others, because, again, it's not a teacher book. It talks about all sorts of fields of, of expertise. There's the stories about the military in there and, and their use of group work, etc. But she does mention in, in the book about group work, if not structured effectively, it will be a disaster. So you've got, you know, some really, really good practice out there that needs to be shared. People like Sammy and then, the, you know, the work from the, the SAR the acronym. And we, we talk about that in the in action book. Rob Wall in the Job podcast, uh, season three, episode four, with David Goodwin, who is the co-author of Organise Ideas. And... Uh, I mean, these ideas are quite complex, and you are, I mean, I was just looking at your name, it sounds like Professor David Goodwin, and you look, you look a little bit like a professor, you're saying no, but you are, you're talking to a very high level, I remember when we interviewed Kate Jones, and also Stuart Locker, I was just sitting there in awe of the, the amount of knowledge that, that those two people had, obviously everyone who comes on has an element of knowledge, but you go into very complex ideas, and it's absolutely fascinating. Um, how can our listeners... Get in touch with you. Are you, uh, are you a prolific tweeter? You know what? I, I was. I've sort of not taken a step back. I, you know, checking most days, but because I'm so busy all the time, um, I don't get around to, to doing much tweeting or blogging as much as I used to. But yeah, I am on Twitter, Mr. Goodwin23. Our website, organiseideas.com. Brilliant. And of course, you're at Research Head. Warrington next, is it? Have you got any more public Birmingham. speaking? Birmingham first. In March, uh, Warrington, Leicester, I think there's one other, but I can't recall. Hey, I don't know if listeners know this, this is one of the, the, the amazing things. I said earlier in the podcast, I, I didn't, me and Oliver hadn't met in person. First time me and Oliver met was 20 minutes before, literally 20 minutes before we were due to present at the Research at National Conference in last September. So the first time we met in person. And that, I was tw- it was 20 minutes before because I'd had three train cancellations. So I was l- really <laughs> worrying. <laughs> yeah, we got there and, and it was, it was pro- out of all of the presentations we've done together, I still think it might have been the best, despite the fact that we, we'd never rehearsed it or anything like that. I mean, we'd planned the slides together and, and who was going to present what, but just sort of seemed to work and click. Brilliant. Well, our listeners hopefully will be able to catch up with you. We're going to move on to our quick fire section now. So yeah. this is where we take all your ideas and we distill them down into one or two words. Don't know how you'll get on with this, but uh, we'll give it a go. So I, I, I'm going to do this section, David. So the okay. first word, just one one or two word answers. Marking. Time wasting. Emails. Too many. Department time. Invaluable. Booklets for lessons. Game changer. Middle leaders. Heroes. Data drops. Too many. <laughs> Mark exams. Oh, I can't distill this down to one or two. Can be useful when done correctly. Grammar schools. I see, I don't have an opinion. 
Doubt of opinion, really. Yeah, doubt of opinion. I, I'm, I'm undecided. Parents evenings. Needed. Isolation booths. Unfortunate. Exclusions. Unfortunate. Silent corridors. Important. Free schools. Important. Well done. Some interesting answers. It's hard. Yeah. We were, to, we were saying we'd love to do research of, of the people we've interviewed, try and work out what you, but not, not what you've said. What, what, yeah, what it says yeah, about yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. We I, just I, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, as I said, so, some of them I haven't really got an opinion because I've not really thought about it. So like grammar school's not really, yeah, not something I've ever really thought about. Okay, moving on to our fun questions. So again, I'll, I'll get started with these. We're nearly at the end of the podcast. Are you a tea man or a coffee man, David? Coffee all the way. And if, I say this is a theoretical question, but it's not theoretical because we've done this in real life. But next time we meet up in person and we mm. buy you something from the bar, what are we going to buy you? Yeah. You, you tell me, can you remember? It was a pint of something, but I can't remember because if you remember, I'd had a few too many by the end of the night, <laughs> hence why I had to have a sleep in the afternoon. I don't it's, think, I, I was going to say Peroni, but I don't think it was Peroni. I think it as, was, was it? That's Michael. Guinness. Guinness. Yeah, Guinness mm. or, a, or a single malt. Yeah, Michael yeah. had a bottle of Peroni, I remember. Yeah, that's right. What actually yeah. makes me worry is that we're on, I think this is the 45th episode we've done. If, if we actually have to cash in on all these drinks that we're offering to buy. Yeah, you will you. This is a research ed that could bankrupt us. If we were to delve into your um, into your back catalogue of online music, what would be your uh, top played artist at the moment? Robert Sounds. Nice. So this, what's your guilty pleasure? Oh, God, I don't know if I can share this. <laughs> yes, you can. No, I don't know if I can share this. Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. <laughs> just make just a smile on my face. Fair enough. Isn't that what what music's supposed to do, though? Yeah, well, in Canto at the moment, in Canto, that's not my guilty pleasure, but Daughter has got it on repeat, so I feel like I I know all of the words to every song. If you were shipwrecked on a desert island, Mm -hmm. um, all your food and water is taken care of, so Guinness on tap by the sounds of it, um, what two luxury items would you have to have with you? He already looks like he is shipwrecked with that beard. Hey, I had that trip yesterday. That's believable. Uh, two luxury items. Some form of Lego. Is, is, there, is there a theme to that Lego? Are we Star, Star, Wars, Star Wars? Star Wars or anything DC or Marvel? Quite a book. I'm quite easy. I don't know. Quite. Yeah, but. Taylor Swift, cardboard cutout. It's only one song. It's just shake it off. It's just I, I fail not to smile when that song comes on. When we first started working together, um, James mm. had a, a, a quite a large cardboard cutout of Cheryl Cole, and he had it on his desk. And it was it wasn't inappropriate, but you know she was <laughs> she, she was sexy, or she is sexy, but she looks sexy. And I mean, Mike was in the office late one night, and the, the boss at the time he came in, he said to Mike, he went, "Who is this woman? Is this his wife?" And so Mike was laughing, saying, well, no, no, it's Cheryl Cole. Um, she's a, you know, quite a famous pop singer. He confiscated it. Brilliant. 
Cuffed it and James eventually had to then go and grovel and get it back, but then it wasn't allowed to be up in his office ever again. James, we're gonna, this, this bit's going to be cut out, I suspect. I, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. No. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to share my love for Cheryl, to be honest with you. David, what's the greatest piece of advice that you've ever been given? I feel like I get a lot of good, like, I'm surrounded by people, I get a lot of good advice from a lot. If something that stands out. There's nothing really that stands out. I feel like I get a lot of good advice. Surround yourself with good people then, from the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like I have a small circle of friends and and those are the people I, I surround myself with because they want the best for me. So, yeah. Best nice. piece of advice I've ever been given, I just gave myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the final question is always what's next for you what's next for David Goodwin you've alluded to your fact, the fact you work on another book with Olive Cav Mike Giles has very cryptically said that you and him are working on a secret project but he wouldn't give any more we've got the research and events coming up so <clears throat> could you summarise this for us what is next for, for David Goodwin yeah so we've got the uh, the Extended Mind Action book coming out very soon hopefully we're just tying up some loose ends with it i'm about to start a project with michael i don't know how much we can say i suppose we, i mean we, we both know about it so we're working on a book and yeah i'm about to start another project with Oliver as well so a busy few months but yeah it's it's exciting uh, i've got a ski trip coming up as well so with school ski trip february half term so yeah, a lot, a lot going on. And we're, off, we're, we're going to Harry Potter World, so that's going to be good as well. Taking the dog to Harry Potter World and everything else. But yeah, in terms of professionally, a couple of books, projects lined up. Want to sort because one of the things we did would be that sort of sprung out the organised ideas uh, book was uh, our sort of company. It's not, a, I suppose, it's not officially a business at the moment, but we've got a website, organisedideas.com, illustrating a couple of book covers some upcoming books as well yeah there's a there's a few things in the in the pipeline do you um david do you have to sleep because it seems yeah, like you've yeah i, I I'm, I'm just getting back to i had COVID back in october and it, it's, i'm still not feeling great now like i have good days and bad days so sort of getting back into the swing of it all um yeah i, I, I seem to be able to get a lot done but i don't know i'll be honest it might be a, 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 a discreet episode on organise yourself because I mean we haven't even mentioned the fact that you're head of year ten and year eleven amidst all this stuff that you're doing, you know, in terms of the writing. So you really are burning the candle at every single end, aren't you? Yeah, I, I, I was asked like how I was asked previously how how I fit it all in or how I do it. I think the answer was just I've got an understanding family that appreciates that this is what I'm passionate about and enjoy doing. Yeah, I mean, with the organised ideas book, that that did take up. It, it got to the point where I was thinking, I, I think I was working schoolwork and then probably two or three hours on the night, and then I was up early in the morning as well, doing a couple of hours before I went to school. But then our terms as well. Um, but yeah, I don't think I'll, I'll quite get to that point again. I don't think I'll need to. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've got, I've got an understanding and uh, support family. Yeah, and, and I'm sure when you get the royalties in from uh, 
organise ideas and all these other books you're writing, I'm sure Mrs Goodwin will have have that money well spent, won't she? I think, I, th- well, I think she thinks it's like the new Harry Potter series or something. <laughs> Brilliant. Listen, David, it's been a pleasure. You're so knowledgeable about your field and, and I'm sure we'll hopefully have another episode at some point in the future and we'll definitely catch up with your research, Ed, but thank you for Definitely. joining us on more than a job tonight David Goodwin my pleasure thank you gents peace and clear now baby yeah yeah cause it begins like